0: Welcome to Travels Through Time and a special episode supported by Oxford University Press. <laughs> it's Violet here. This week we're headed for Prague, capital of the 16th century kingdom of Bohemia. Since the 1980s there's been a concerted effort to recover and reassess the role played by women in the past, as historians strive to tell their stories objectively and in more detail. This is very much the aim of today's guest, Nadine Ackerman, a Dutch academic who has spent the last two decades trawling archives across Europe with the aim of bringing together the correspondence of an extraordinary woman, Elizabeth Stuart, Princess of England and Scotland, Electress of the Palatinate and, briefly, Queen of Bohemia. Elizabeth was the daughter of James I and the sister of the ill-fated Charles, and while plenty has been written about her over the centuries since her death in 1662, much of it is coloured by bias, inaccuracy and rumour. In her riveting new book, Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Hearts, Nadine Ackerman draws back the curtain on centuries of hearsay and prejudice to reveal Elizabeth's life in its full, extraordinary glory. This was a woman of great courage and intelligence, who ruled alongside her husband, guided their children after his death, played a vital role in contemporary politics, hunted wild boar while eight months pregnant. Who knows how the 17th century would have turned out if she had acceded to the throne of England in 1625 instead of her hapless brother, Charles I. She was, in so many ways, the true successor of her namesake and godmother, Queen Elizabeth I. Nadine Ackerman is reader in early modern English literature at Leiden University and author of the critically acclaimed Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain and The Correspondence of Elizabeth Stewart, Queen of Bohemia. We are also excited to announce that our partners at UnseenHistories.com are doing a special feature on Nadine's book at the moment with an exclusive extract and some stunning images. So please head over to their website if you'd like to find out more. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Nadine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and whereabouts are you joining us from today? I'm in Leiden,
1: in a very tiny canal house in the middle of the centre.
0: And so you you are Dutch, you're from Holland, but the book that we're going to be talking about today that you have just written is about Elizabeth Stewart, who was uh, James the First's daughter. So she was a big mixture. She was born in Scotland but then lived in England during her childhood and then she married uh, the Elector of Palatine and so then spent, I I think if I'm right, the rest of her life all over Europe and we're going to talk um, in much more detail later about her experiences in Prague, but before we talk about her life specifically, I I would like to ask you when you first encountered Elizabeth Stewart and what is it about her that, that makes you so interested in her?
1: I first encountered her when I was doing my PhD at uh, the beginning of 2002 it was, so a long time ago and um, I was researching her letters and I wanted to look into her own words because she was basically accused of starting the Thirty Years' War in, in footnotes so nobody really wrote about her and it turned out that nobody had actually looked at her own correspondence. Uh, which was old and there was so much of it it couldn't go into an archive without finding another 100 letters that clearly weren't read by historians before. Um, the sand that was used to dry the ink of her writings often still was kind of visible on, on the letter itself, meaning that these papers were hardly ever touched apart from by the recipient. So nobody had really taken the time to look at her own words, and by looking at her words, there were Sort of uh, there was a completely different picture quite quite rapidly as as well um of of what had been written about her
0: and why do you think nobody had looked at her letters was it a simple case of histories written by men for men, about men, do you think, or was it more complicated
1: well, that's certainly uh, a, a big part of it. I think ever since the 1980s, we have been more interested in women's history, but relatively speaking, that has only been a couple of decades. Uh, But there has been a wonderful biography already in the 19th century written by a woman But she obviously couldn't travel all through Europe. Uh, So she looked at only the English archives. And I also looked at German archives and and Italy and archives in the United States and private collections. And so it was easier for me in that respect to do more research. But I think um, we still need to do an awful lot. It's not only Elizabeth Stewart, but for instance, if we look at the other Uh, queens of the period, of the Stuart period, and of Denmark's letters or Henrietta Mariah's letters have not been collected. Nobody has done the same thing as I've now done uh, for Elizabeth Stuart. And it's also, it's incredibly time-consuming. So I've been working on Elizabeth Stuart since 2002, uh, discovered thousands of letters that that are rediscovered because archivists uh, usually know that they have them uh, so rediscover them uh, all over Europe but that similar work hasn't been done for other queens
0: that's so exciting so if there's any budding Stuart historians out there they should get themselves into the archives as soon as they can so part of this part of the problem was that people weren't looking at um the full extent of her letters and her papers but i know that another part of the problem there's perhaps sometimes slightly unrealistic or sexist readings of the evidence about her and i i wonder if you could talk about a bit a bit about that explain a bit about that because that's obviously something which has changed a lot in the way that we study history in the last 20 years, as you said, or, or, or 30 years. Talk a bit about that though, especially that there was, there was an example that you gave in your introduction, which I just thought was so interesting about the way that she treated her children and her relationship with her dogs and her monkeys. So can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so whenever I say, oh, I work on Elizabeth Stewart, everybody's sort of, the immediate reaction is, uh, because the line everybody remembers in history is that she loved her monkeys and dogs more than her 13 children. And that is, of course, a wonderful image of a woman surrounded by dogs and monkeys. But if you actually go to the source, it comes from a um, biography written by one of her daughters. And that daughter says at the beginning of 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 that uh, biography, "I'm going to write a satire, and I'm going to make fun of everyone." So this statement is completely taken out of context because it's no longer mentioned that this is supposed to be a satire, and w- we can hardly um, no longer imagine people having monkeys. But it was quite normal for aristocratic women to have monkeys at the time as part of their menagerie. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a kind of a, a symbol of having access to, to a, a new world. Um, so, so it was also a symbol of power. And she sort of fought all her life for the rights of her children. She was a very loving mother and her letters are, are full of loving references. So she loved her, her children very, very much.
0: And you say also that she was part of the evidence for her not being a good mother was that she sent her children away to be brought up at a different court. Um, but that was that was normal in those days, wasn't it? I mean, if you were royal, you, you weren't brought up in the same place as your parents normally.
1: Absolutely. It was kind of royal custom at the time. Um, As you said, she was the daughter of of James, who who was then still uh, James VI of Scotland, who later becomes James I of England. And in Scotland, she was given to guardians and and raised elsewhere, as she was in in England. And she was even kept apart from her uh, siblings at the time. And while she really, really loved her, her elder brother, Henry, And she had always resented being kept apart from her brother. So she made sure that her own children were raised together in in one single home. And um, the kind of new Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, for instance, says that they were raised at a court three days away from her own court well it turns out to be just three hours and she visited that court quite regularly because it was quite close to her her court in exile in the hague and she made sure that all her children got a proper education she uh, made sure that they were in a university town that the the boys went to university but that the, the the girls uh, were visited by professors, so in a way, the the girls got a university education as well, which was quite unusual at the time.
0: And let's go back now to talk a bit about her childhood and her education, because she was also um, she was also given a very good education, and she was, I believe, named after Elizabeth the who of course was famously very um, clever and well educated. Um, and she was her godmother, wasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Um so can you tell us a bit about that and 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 how what her early childhood was like
1: Yeah she was named after Elizabeth I uh basically because her parents were very keen on on being uh favored by Elizabeth I of course they wanted that crown of England so they were sort of making sure that Elizabeth I wouldn't forget them and saying we have this lovely little girl can we name her after you and Elizabeth I agreed Um, poets at the time immediately started to compare her to the great queen of England. Uh, So that was sort of ingrained into her entire being, that people were constantly comparing her to this uh, great queen. She started as a very little girl, copying the signature of Elizabeth I, so her signature was exactly the same throughout her life as that of Elizabeth I, with all the wonderful curls uh, that are so characteristic of that signature. Uh, So people, just imagine people seeing a letter and being for, even if it's a split split second, being a bit confused uh, what kind of letter they are actually looking at
0: yeah that Uh, must have annoyed some historians in oh yes it it
1: creates (laughs) some confusion absolutely Uh, but she was taught italian Uh, she writes her first italian letters as a little girl of seven Um, she wants to learn latin Um, there is this kind of story that her father forbids her to uh, learn any uh, classical languages whether that's true or not is difficult to say Uh, We do have a letter of her to her elder brother saying, I will improve your Italian if you sort of give me access to your Latin skills. So she was clearly looking for that classical education herself as well. And she was a a better French speaker than any of her other siblings.
0: So she was obviously very bright.
1: Yes, very, very clever girl. And that's certainly what we also... Thing to see when we look at the early portraits, uh, but portraits, of course, aren't a reality, and the the painter of this period Robert Peake was instructed to give her the same face as her father so we think we look at this kind of really old girl when she's only uh, portrayed as a nine-year-old she has a very old face but that's because her father wants to make sure this is my daughter and you can see that in her in her features so in a way we don't even know what she looked like but she was certainly very clever
0: and so, when she was quite young, as was traditional, um preparations began to be made for who she would marry. Um, so can you can you tell us about that who who was on the list of suitors?
1: Oh, there were so many suitors at the time. everyone wanted to to marry the only girl of 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 james and and, and of Denmark. Uh, for instance, we had mores of Orange, the prince of uh, the Prince of Orange, who later played would play a very big part in her life, uh, wanting to marry her. Um, her father then saying, "Well, this is just some kind of uh, German prince uh, is too insignificant." Also, the King of Spain uh, at some point wanted to marry her. Uh, There were a lot of suitors. Almost all the European lands were after the jewel of Europe, as she was called.
0: Goodness me. So that was that was her nickname when she was little.
1: Yes. And and throughout her life. Yeah.
0: Um, And so they settled on Frederick V, who was the elector of Palatine. Is that right?
1: Yes, they started negotiating for him quite early on. Um, They had never really um, taken that offer seriously because he had quite still a young father. So it wasn't, uh, when the proposal started, it wasn't immediately evident that he would be elected Palatine quickly enough. But when his father died quite unexpectedly because of ill health and um, he, he, he really drank too much, that man, so he died <laughs> quite young. He suddenly was the elector palatine in waiting, and he still had to reach his majority, but that was sort of quite quickly thereafter. And there were a lot of things going on in Europe at the time. Um, for instance, uh, the King of France was assassinated. So James felt we really need to support the Protestants and uh, he wasn't only uh, elected Palatine, he was also the leader of the Protestant Union, which was kind of a military alliance. So in that way, there was this kind of wedding, a union sort with uh, a, a very pro- the Protestant power in Europe.
0: And can you just explain what the Palatine was, uh, where, you know, which lands it, it included?
1: Yes, it's the the Palatinate is um, in Germany, and it consists of two parts. One is around Heidelberg, which is the lower Palatinate, and a part um, which is borders on Bohemia, um, on on um, in the area around around Prague, which is the upper Palatinate with the capital Amberg. So uh, two quite separate areas which uh, make up the Palatinate. And the Elector Palatine was one of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire and one of the most powerful ones because he was the only elector who could veto decisions of the emperor.
0: And he's called an elector. Was he genuinely elected?
1: No, it's, it's, it's a kind of hereditary title, but they elect the emperor. So, it's, right. so okay. they have the power to elect rather than being elected themselves.
0: Okay. Um and so the negotiations um come to a head and 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 then just b- briefly tell us about the wedding because that did sound like quite an event.
1: Oh, it 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 was uh, absolutely fantastic. Um James wanted Frederick this little boy to come over to England because he first wanted to make sure that the guy didn't have any hereditary diseases so that was the reason it wasn't a proxy marriage he had to make sure that this boy was healthy enough and he he was turned out to be quite handsome but still they're only kind of 16 when they marry so they're both quite young and Frederick certainly looks like a little boy in, in, in paintings and it was an arranged marriage, as as we said, and and Elizabeth at the time wasn't particularly keen, uh, but she played uh, the kind of dutiful daughter. Uh, normally, it's immediately portrayed as a very kind of romantic fairy tale wedding, but I think it's very important for a biographer to keep in mind that this was an arranged marriage, and that she had very mixed feelings, um, as her own kind of letters um, make clear. But they arrive with, with hundreds of of courtiers from uh, Germany, but also from um, Holland, um, because he w- was a nephew of the Prince of Orange. It it and it was a very grand affair. Um, the, the there were a lot of preparations. Something terrible happened, which at first put a stop to. Um, the feelings of of joy and celebrations, which was that her elder brother, Henry, died quite unexpectedly. So we have um, a sense of mourning being united with celebration. And James wants to speed up the wedding. Uh, It was initially planned as late as May, but he wants to bring that forward because there are voices of discontent um, they are saying, we have uh, one boy left, um, Charles, um, but he, Charles was sickly at the time. So if the sturdy Prince Henry could die, then Charles wouldn't, wouldn't really survive or, or that's what people thought. Um, so they concentrated on Elizabeth, thinking this could well be our queen. And is it wise to let her run off with this kind of German prince and perhaps we will never see her again. So there were voices of discontent. And therefore, I think it was also celebrated with such grand fanfare. It was more like um, the opening of the Olympic Games. There were so much fireworks and so many kind of uh, days of celebration um, that we, we th- they hadn't seen anything like it at the
0: time. Amazing. So, um, So they get married and then she sets off. For Europe and I think now um, we have set the scene really nicely um, so that we can um, go to your chosen year so I'm going to ask you Nadine if you could travel back in time in a time machine which year would you go back to? I would go
1: back to the year 1620.
0: Okay so 1620 is a few years after the wedding and can you just give us a brief overview of the situation? What's happening in 1620 to Elizabeth and Frederick?
1: Since 1613, she has lived in Germany, uh, the capital Heidelberg. She has uh, learned to love her husband. She had first a lot of arguments with her mother-in-law, but finally the mother-in-law moved out out of the castle and she um, started to like Frederick a lot more. They have several children at the time, and then Frederick makes the decision to accept the crown of Bohemia. And they are crowned king and queen in 1619. And she is in Prague, while he is away uh, trying to get support from other kind of Bohemian lands that surrounds them. Um, And in 1620, there's a lot of kind of disagreements arising, starting to arise, Uh, Catholic as well as Protestant princes sort of say, this has been a mistake. Frederick needs to abdicate.
0: And why was he offered
1: the crown? It's it's a very complicated situation at the time. Uh, We have this kind of major uh, conflict between Catholics and Protestants. It starts with the emperor um, violating religious rights of Protestants Um, in in Bohemia, and there are rebels who sort of do no longer want him to be king of Bohemia. Uh, The emperor is often also the king of Bohemia, that's one and the same person. Uh, But while he is sort of um, elected as emperor, he's disposed as king of Bohemia, and they are looking for a new king, and the rebels offer that crown to Frederick. And he wants to protect Protestants' rights, the rights of, 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 of uh, the same religion um, he has. He, he, is, he is a Calvinist. Um, and they, they go to Prague. Um, and within a year, it goes horribly wrong there. So they okay. are crowned in 1619. And uh, he leaves her in Prague, in the capital of that new land. And she's alone there. So the crowned in November 1619, in March 1620, at the Muhlhausen Conference, there are already the first voices of of discontent saying Frederick needs to abdicate. And the emperor, who was then also the, the post-king of Bohemia, starting to threaten him, saying, I will place you under the imperial ban. That means I will strip you of your lands and titles, also of the the German lands that you, you have, uh, and I will render you an outlaw if you do not abdicate. Uh, Frederick refuses to do so. So we see a lot of kind of military preparations starting already as early as March 1620.
0: Okay, so that I think um, takes us very nicely to to your first scene so can you um, describe where where we are what, what we're going to witness
1: yes we have a a scene of Elizabeth alone in Prague and I think I cannot stress this enough because other biographers haven't realized how much of the time of their reign which is a year from one winter to the next winter she is actually alone there so she she Um, refuses to leave the capital, Prague, because she wants to support her subjects. At all this time, her husband is with the army because uh, three armies are are raised against them. Uh, We have an imperial army, we have an army of a distant cousin, the Duke of Bavaria, and we have an army of another elector, a Lutheran. Uh, They're all heading towards Prague, where Elizabeth is alone. Uh, there's also another uh, army, Spanish army, heading towards uh, the Palatinate, those kind of German lands. Um, and Elizabeth is uh, particularly worried at first about those Spanish soldiers because they are um, invading her dower lands, her own lands. Dower lands are lands given to a woman upon her marriage and held in trust. Uh, remaining a property even in the event of her being widowed. So she sees those lands as hers. And she is saying to her father, they are not only uh, threatening uh, my husband, but they are taking lands that are really mine. Um, And by by the middle of September, all her ladies-in-waiting, almost all of them, have left Prague. And Frederick is, is um, at the army, and he's writing letters to her, saying, okay, all, all your goods, all the stuff has been packed in case we have to flee, um, but I need you to leave now. And she refuses to do so. She says, I need to be with my, my subjects. Um, she also has a little baby with her, uh, the, uh, Rupert. Uh, People know Rupert because of the civil wars uh, in England later. Uh, But at that time, he's not even a a year old. Um, The other children uh, were left with German relatives. Um, She's heavily pregnant. So she's there with a baby and heavily pregnant. And um, Frederick is writing letters saying it's getting out of hand. Um, He... He doesn't really mince his words. He writes about uh, dismemberment. He, he writes about uh, soldiers, his legs being blown off, uh, people dying all around him. Um, and he's saying it's time to leave, and she refuses to do so.
0: Why do you think she refused? I mean, I know you say that she wanted to stay with her subjects, but she'd only been their queen for a very short amount of time. Do you think she really had developed that much of a sense of responsibility and a bond with the people of Prague by that time? Or do you think there was something else in it? Well,
1: I think she feels that she has a duty as an elected queen. Um, Of course, her her father believed in the defined rights of kings. Yeah, Um, that's true. So so that's how how she was raised. But she really believes she has a, a duty towards... Her subjects and she doesn't want them to lose heart. She thinks if if I leave there will be panic Um, so she is trying to to hold the city together. Uh, She has had a a lot of difficulty with uh, the Bohemian subjects during that year actually. They didn't understand her way of uh, clothing for instance. Uh, She was a woman with a very low cleavage for instance (laughs) Uh, and and they said well she she needs to cover herself up Um, she always refuses to do so she dresses the way she wants to dress but she does make sure that her ladies in waiting dress a a bit more um, uh, appropriately so she does try to pay attention to what is being said but I think by the time it's getting out of hand. Uh, in September or October of 1620, she had actually won uh, the love of, of the Bohemian uh, subjects.
0: She was obviously really strong-minded, wasn't she, and determined and confident in her own.
2: Yes,
1: confident, opinions. very brave. Um, yeah, we have a, a a steward agent, a kind of ambassador, who later becomes the secretary, Sir Francis Nediso. Um, it, who was sort of instructed to get her out of there. And he writes these letters saying she doesn't want to move. I don't know what to do. And she says the cannon fire doesn't fight her at all. It would be enough to fight any other queen but her. So she is incredible, cr- incredibly inflexible. Um, that's certainly a characteristic that stays with her throughout her, her life, but also very brave. Just imagine... Um, not yeah. not really understanding the languages at all, uh, so um, she didn't speak uh, German with uh, with her husband even. She, they they spoke French, uh, but I'm pretty sure she didn't uh, speak any Czech. Um, so it, it's she is surrounded by foreigners, and yet d- is determined to stay put because she is the queen that who is going to defend her subjects.
0: Um, so what happens next? What's our second scene?
1: Our second scene is a lunch before that fatal battle of White Mountain, the Battle of Prague. The day before the battle, her husband comes to back, comes back to the capital to Prague, and they're having lunch, and they're, they're quite confident. He is saying, yes, the the army is approaching, but I also have 28,000 men of my own and they're still um, uh, between uh, us and and the capital. Um, So during that lunch, they are confident that they will be able to defend the capital. And Elizabeth even uh, makes plans to, to visit the troops. Uh, she is clearly still modelling herself after Elizabeth I. Uh, she's per- perhaps thinking about doing a Tilbury, uh, go, <laughs> going to to the troops. Um, so she's making those plans to visit the army uh, the next day. And the next day, it goes wrong. That lunch before the battle, uh, they they are still uh, enjoying their food. And the first uh, soldiers start uh, arriving in the capital who have fled from from the battle. The whole battle is over within an hour. So it starts uh, quarter past twelve. It's really done at one thirty. It's it's uh, it's over, and it has uh, sort of taken them by surprise.
0: That must be the shortest battle in history. It's it?
1: incredibly short. We mustn't forget this this is in november the death of winter soldiers were already freezing to death frederick's side had had really lost morale they were unwilling actually to to dig trenches uh, they had already given up before had, it had even started and they flee quite quickly and as soon as you turn your back to to the army uh, to to the enemy's army um, you are beaten and um they weren't even that outnumbered by by that many. they were outnumbered by only by two thousand so it's it's still uh, it could have been a more equal fight, but they give up quite quickly
0: because you would have thought that the the emperor, the Holy Roman emperor they, he would have had way more troops. you would have thought I mean you said there's three different armies alone coming to fight them there and then another army going to um, attack them in Germany. That seems quite surprising that they had almost the same number of troops.
1: Yes. Well, yes, they weren't really that uh, outnumbered by that many. Both sides just lost about 600 men in the battle. Uh, Frederick lost another 1,000 in the, in the retreat, another 1,200 were, were wounded. Um, so even the casualty rate wasn't that high, but they, they gave up. Um, they had a, a weak um, a position, and the, the morale was was very low. And, and I think that even the the imperial forces, certainly the Bavarian forces, were actually a bit surprised that they uh, had given up. Almost that, as if almost the battle was not not the issue. It's more that the the army fled at at, a, at the given time that that um, did them in. <laughs>
2: Hello, it's Artemis, one of the presenters on Travels Through Time. I hope you're enjoying this conversation about Elizabeth Stewart, which fits perfectly with Women's History Month. This episode is supported by Oxford University Press, one of the world's leading publishers of high-quality, scholarly and thought-provoking history books. As well as Nadine Ackerman's biography of Elizabeth Stewart, Recent highlights include Benjamin Lipscomb's revelatory history of four women philosophers who shaped the intellectual history of the 20th century, Colin Jones's brilliant microhistory of the downfall of Maximilian Robespierre, and Anthony Pagin's nuanced account of the history of European unification. To find out more about any of these titles, and many more too, you can visit their website at global.oup forward slash (laughs) academic.
0: So let's go to scene three uh, to find out what Elizabeth and Frederick do.
1: Yeah, and then uh, the the flight begins, the kind of exodus from Prague, uh, with a very heavily pregnant Elizabeth. Um, And she had stayed in Prague to uh, make sure that the subjects wouldn't panic. As soon as the decision is being taken, uh, that she will uh, flee a- a- as well, then uh, Prague really surrenders, gi- gives up uh, the fight. And so they need to uh, cross the bridge in Prague and then make sure that she will get out of there safely. And they need to cross the River Alba um, w- with a-, 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 a lot of carriages as well. And what we see during that flight, that Frederick is really uncertain. Um, but Elizabeth... Does not let herself fall below the dignity of a queen. It's really, uh, again, it's it's her who makes sure who makes sure that this kind of group of people, uh, hundreds of them, uh, stay together and and get out of there safely. And where do they go? She heads towards Poland and uh, Frederick separates from, from her quite uh, quickly on, deliberately, because he, he still doesn't want to give up. So he wants to sort of talk to uh, other princes uh, to see whether he can get some support. Even Elizabeth writes to, to her friends, um, uh, a war is not lost with one battle. So she is, she is still kind of determined to fight. Um, She still believes that he will manage to to get support, uh, but he he will fail to do so. So she goes to Poland. Uh, She ends up in Kustrin, which is in in Brandenburg, a German state, uh, but on the border of Poland. And even though uh, the elector of Brandenburg is one of the other electors, But also related to her he's a brother-in-law but by this time we must forget that they are outlaws the emperor has stripped them of their lands and titles and nobody is really allowed to take them in so the elector of Brandenburg even though he is family as well is very very hesitant to do so Um, so she asks permission to stay at his castle the first letters she receives is saying, well, we don't really have kitchen staff. It's very cold here. We don't really have the kind of tapestries to keep the the walls warm. Uh, you shouldn't really be coming here. Is uh, but she she has no uh, option at that point really because she is eight 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 months pregnant. Uh, so she needs to find a place to stay, and so she she arrives in Brandenburg. And she would um, uh, later give birth there to Morris.
0: And tell us, um, tell us the story about when they, she had to, for some reason, leave her carriage. And
1: yes, during the flight, of course, they take all these carriages with her. But they notice that some of her own wagons are pillaged by some of their own supporters. So people are sort of in disarray and uh, pillage their wagons. And then at that point, a decision is, is taken to continue on horseback. Elizabeth was a woman who would spear a Boar while she was eight months pregnant from horseback. So she could sort of hold her own. Uh, but she, uh, the story is that she was placed behind uh, Ralph Hopton so that he takes her away on horseback whether that's true or not I, I don't know because she was such a good rider herself um, so I can't see the reason for her being placed behind a, ma- a man on a horseback unless they had to share the horses that there were weren't enough horses um, but that's ha- how, how they make it out of there.
0: That's an amazing image isn't it with, you can imagine her eight months pregnant with a huge stomach yes riding away from Prague she sounds like such, just such a an incredible person. So what happened after that? I mean, she, she lived for another, I how many years? 40 years or 30 years? Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about where, where did they go, her and Frederick?
1: She doesn't die until 1662. And I think that's also one of the reasons why she is so incredibly interesting. She writes to all the kings and queens of Europe, to all the generals of the Thirty Years' War, the war that had basically started with her husband accepting the crown of Bohemia. So, if you look at her, you don't only look at a woman. You look at a, a conflict, the Thirty Years' War, which is then intertwined with the Eight Years' War elsewhere in Europe, uh, and later uh, even w- with the, the the civil wars uh, in in England and and Scotland. So, if you look at her, you you have this kind of picture of what is going on in Europe. They find refuge in Holland, in in the Low Countries, because Morris, the Prince of Orange, is a a family of Frederick. And he thinks, um, just come here, I've rented a house for three days, and then surely you will go back to your father to England. Uh, (laughs) And they decide to to stay there and to organize their military campaign um, from The Hague, Um, in in, in the Low Countries. Also, it's a very conscious decision. James doesn't really want her back in England uh, because the the House of Commons is is in sitting and he doesn't really know what will happen if she comes back, whether they will scream war or um, do exactly the opposite, give up because they, they might think she is now safely in England. But there are a lot of soldiers, English and Scottish soldiers, Uh, in the Hague because they are part of the state army. So they think Elizabeth can be a figurehead for these soldiers. They can see for whom they are fighting. So she is again rallying the troops uh, in in the Hague and she sadly becomes a widow at quite an early age as well. Um, In 1632 she is widowed. uh, Her husband uh, dies of of illness um on on the battlefield and she is responsible for her all of her children she would get thirteen children with frederick she is almost pregnant her her entire marriage uh, that is also very uh, impossible almost to imagine
0: yeah don't underestimate what influence that would have had my goodness, I can't imagine anything worse anyway um we <laughs> <Me> neither. <laughs> 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 but she she decides to um
1: keep she keeps writing letters, um, having very different views uh first um from her father but when she's widowed also very different views from her brother. And that's one of the reasons she um continues to opt for voluntary exile because Charles I invites her back to England once she's widowed. He says, well, you, you can stay at court here. Uh, but she sort of realises that he will read all her letters and he will decide what her the, the foreign policy then would be. So she says, no, thank you very much. I'm perfectly happy here um, at The Hague, where I can receive all kinds of ambassadors uh, who travel through through the capital, and I, I can meddle with, with all kinds of affairs, um, which she does.
0: Well, I'd also retain her, her, her independence.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. She, <clears throat> yes, nobody can really touch her there.
0: What a story. And I know she carried on fighting for her children, didn't she? And her son eventually became an, an elector. Yes. In,
1: in 1648, uh, the Peace of Westphalia gives, um, gives them back part of the platinid. So these were kind of two separate areas in Germany. He receives half of it back, uh, the, the, the part um, uh, of which Heidelberg was the capital. She has been all always against that compromise. She was for all or nothing. In 1636, she was offered a better deal, but declined it, even sabotaged a, a peace treaty. Uh, to make sure that they wouldn't get half of it back because she wanted all of it back because she was uh, fully aware how the empire worked and that the power actually came with the entire Palatinate uh, rather than with half of it. So she she didn't want just uh, lands, she also wanted to have a say for her children in the empire. So she was actually quite cross with her son Charles Louis at the time, who then accepts half of it. Uh, it. To be honest, he has no other choice there. And um, if if you, you can even say think about it quite provocatively, what ha- would have happened if she just had accepted a better deal in 1636? Could she have shortened a 30 years war even and of course there are many players in that war and she surely can't can cannot be held solely responsible but she surely was one of the many factors why it lasted longer than it should have done
0: mm. so she was a real player um there's one more question uh that i'm going to ask you um which is if you could have picked something up from one of these um three scenes that we visited today and brought it back with you to the present so you could keep it for yourself what would it be
1: yeah that that is such a brilliant question and i had to think about that long and hard um so the story is that they left all things all kinds of things behind in prague um uh, which they didn't. That's part of propaganda because the the flight was organised. Uh, everything was neatly packed weeks in advance, so they didn't really leave anything of value that was of any value behind. Even there's a story that Frederick lost uh, the garter belt, and that ends up in in the palaces of his enemy, the Duke of Bavaria. But that was lost months before, so that was even, it wasn't even lost during the flight. Uh, but there is one thing, one thing that she sort of, um, sends ambassadors, uh, letters for saying that she wants to have it back. And uh, it's a mysterious item because I don't know what it is. And she describes it as a packet de nuit, packet de nuit in French. So packet of the night and, um, Previous biographers have translated it as night night clothes, pyjamas. I can't imagine that she would send no. dozens of letters to ambassadors saying, I want that back, um, if, if it was some kind of pyjamas. So it, it's a mysterious item, and I just would want to have that, just to know what it is.
0: It must have been something more exciting than pyjamas Carnivan. yes um that's a great choice i love that it's a mystery that's a fantastic choice um thank you so much um for coming on travels through time and i really hope that your book will result in the oxford dictionary of biography being corrected and changed and everybody's view of elizabeth stewart being more informed thank you so much thank you That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Nadine Ackerman the other day and finding out all about the fascinating life of Elizabeth Stewart. Nadine's book of the same name has just been published by Oxford University Press. To order a copy, see Images of Elizabeth and much more, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and find out details about all the other wonderful episodes in our archive. And don't forget to visit UnseenHistories.com to see an exclusive extract of the book, and much more besides. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.